Welcome back to Pete's Grid. I'm Zach Hodges, a pediatric ICU fellow from UT Southwestern in Dallas. And I'm Al Shanklin, a critical care fellow at Children's National in Washington, D.C. Alice, will you remind us what we do here at Pete's Crit? Absolutely. Pete's Crit is an educational pick you podcast. We're looking for the best teaching spiels we can find, and we are putting them on the internet for you. Zach, who are we talking with today? Today, we are very excited to be speaking with Dr. Priya Bhaskar. Dr. Bhaskar is an associate professor of pediatrics here at UT Southwestern and attending in the cardiac ICU at Children's Medical Center Dallas. She actually completed her fellowship here at UT Southwestern before moving to Chicago at Lurie Children's to complete a one-year CICU fellowship. Here, she's attending, as I said, in the cardiac ICU, but she also serves on our ECMO team, where she is a consultant for patients in the PICU or the CICU who need to be on ECMO. Yes, and today, we're really spanning the entire VA ECMO course. We're starting with how and where to cannulate, talking about how to really ensure that your patient's receiving optimal therapy, including the health of the left atria, and how to wean your patient off of those flows and get to a successful decannulation. That's right. It's a core topic for pediatric ICU trainees. Let's jump right to the episode. Welcome back to the podcast. We are so excited to have Dr. Priya Bhaskar with us today to talk about this very important topic. Priya, to get things started, will you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and include something you enjoy outside of medicine? Thank you, Zach, and thank you, Alice, for this opportunity. Like you introduced, my name is Priya. I'm one of the cardiac intensivists at UT Southwestern Children's Health at Dallas. My primary training is peds and then critical care, and then I did a cardiac ICU fellowship at Lurie Children's Hospital at Chicago. And then I was an attending at Little Rock. That was my first job in Arkansas Children's Hospital. After three years there, I was able to come back to Dallas. Dallas has been a second home to us since our move from India to the U.S. And I'm happy to attend in the cardiac ICU in the same unit where I trained. Always brings extra joy in that I primarily attend in the cardiac ICU. And my role with the fellowship and with the fellows and the PICU or the critical care program is more in the role of an ECMO attending. I'm part of the ECMO team. And I round on patients, you know, serve as a consult team to the ICU group in deciding candidacy, cannulation, procedures on ECMO and decannulation, or decision to wean and come off and decannulation. Outside of the hospital, I like to cook a lot, uh, traditional Indian dishes, and I also love to garden. So I like to grow my herbs and vegetables, so on and so forth. <laughs> oh, that sounds lovely. How did you become interested in ECMO specifically and develop this niche? This sounds like really amazing for the teams to have an ECMO-specific consultant. Right. I think it's very unique to Dallas. I don't think any, I mean, I can say I know some programs nationwide and also, you know, from other places I trained and worked. I don't think anybody else has a specific ECMO team, or I could be wrong. I think TCH may have one. So I was invited by Dr. Raman, our ECMO medical director in Dallas, to actually join the team. But I always felt during even my fellowship, right, like when you start, like it was like so overwhelming. And then my approach, you know, in anything that is overwhelming is like, I'm just going to go dive in, you know, deep into it. And then we took care of a kid who had a very unique type of atypical pneumonia and then had significant ARDS and then taking care of him as a fellow, right from the decision to cannulate and how his course of ECMO was and how... It's such a great tool when used very appropriately at the right time and such a rewarding experience. So I always had a great respect for that treatment modality. And then Arkansas also, you know, honed more of my skills. I worked both in the PICU and cardiac ICU there. And then once I came back here, Dr. Raman asked, I really thought it was a way to sort of like give it back. So help, you know, my own program. 
And I also learn a lot both clinically and also use some of our ECMO database and the ELSO database to publish. You know, my clinical research is also somewhat with ECMO. So I think it served a lot of purposes in that aspect. Oh, absolutely. You certainly are giving it back. When we have that patient on ECMO and I see Priya's the on-call attending, certainly I'm excited to chat with her and give her all my questions and issues that I'm dealing with at the bedside. <laughs> I'm glad you feel that way, Zach. <laughs> Priya, we had the fortunate opportunity to interview many cardiac intensivists on the show and a number of training backgrounds. And I would just love to hear some thoughts about why you decided to do the one-year cardiac ICU fellowship and how do you counsel critical care fellows as they're approaching a similar career path as you? Yeah. So how I started was, one, I was inspired by a really great attending. During my first ICU rotation in the cardiac ICU, I had Dr. Markley, who was a wonderful attending. And then it's always very overwhelming, the physiology and everything, right? So he made me do a bedside QPQS calculation, and the way he walked it through, it was just like a kapow, like some, you know, there was a bulb that went on, and I felt like, oh, it's not that overwhelming. You just need to approach, and like I said, my usual philosophy in life is something is overwhelming. I just want to get down deep into it so that my fear about it is like, you know, because I cannot be afraid of this because I need to take care of these patients. So I just like dive deep in. And then during my fellowship, I noticed that it became a certain type of requirement to have an additional training because that opened up. That really became somewhat limiting in some of the programs, right? Like you have to have that extra training to work in the cardiac ICU. And then I decided now is the time, but I really didn't have the energy or time to do another full fellowship. So this seemed to be like a easy next step to that. For people who are really interested in pursuing this as a career or like fellows right now in training, I would recommend doing the dual fellowship because it helps you academically climb through the academic ladder. It gives you a way out, so to speak, like, you know, cardiac intensive care is, you know, there is a lot of a chance to get burned out and it gives you a nice way out either to practice general PICU or you could have a cardiology pathway where you could have run like a high risk clinic or, you know, cardiology clinic. There's a lot of way both to academically ascend or, you know, scale back down. Whereas when you do the cardiology fellowship or PICU fellowship, and then plus one, somewhat how much you can reach in your career-wise may be a little bit restricted. But, you know, doing two fellowships is also difficult for various reasons, right? Your own reasons or personal reasons, family reasons, it may not be possible for a lot of people. So then I would recommend the cardiac ICU the fourth year. But I truly think for to work in the cardiac ICU, you need that additional training because I feel like you need to know this many amount of VSDs longitudinally to see that one VSD, why they're not behaving in the same way as the rest of their cohorts. I think learning that pattern recognition is important and also learning the light lingo, you know, getting introduced to a lot of the cardiology, echo nuances, you know, cath data, how to process a cath data. I feel all of that becomes easier if you do that fourth year fellowship. That's my personal belief. And I truly think that my practice has been better because I did the extra training. Oh, fantastic. All right. Before we get started, we ask every guest, do you have any relevant conflicts of interest to disclose before we start with the case? I don't think so. No, I don't. <laughs> okay. That's very fair. <laughs> it would be rare. <laughs> All right. So we've got a 15-year-old boy with suspected myocarditis admitted to the CICU in cardiogenic shock. He's been refractory to an ongoing resuscitation. He remains hypotensive despite maximal medical therapy with a rising lactate and worsening clinical status. The ICU team is preparing to cannulate him to VA ECMO. So to start with a thousand foot view before we really get into it, what is VA ECMO? VA ECMO, as the nomenclature states, so the first letter is always like where you're training. And then the second letter is like where 
your inflow goes, so to speak. So VA ECMO is veno arterial ECMO. So essentially, you're, you're draining the venous blood, making it go through a pump and an oxygenator, and then it comes back into your arterial system, so to speak. So that's how I would describe veno arterial ECMO, as opposed to VV, where you drain from the venous system and then it is put back into the venous system. Sure. We have a case here of myocarditis, but I'd be interested to know what are the common indications for VA ECMO for patients in the PICU and the cardiac ICU? So essentially, right, you're supporting the circulatory system. So the added benefit is like you're also sort of supporting the respiratory system, but the primary goal is to support a circulatory failure, be it may secondary to a pump dysfunction, right? Like the example you said, a myocarditis patient where overwhelming inflammation in the heart and then you have decreased function because of that. Or another example I could quote is, you know, significant sepsis, where you have like a circulatory collapse because of inflammatory lead um, cytokines leading to, you know, significant vasoplegia. Those would be the topmost things that would come to my head. Interestingly, different toxidromes, right, when they come with significant hypotension. Most recently, we had a kid in the unit where we had to place her on VA ECMO for that. In the neonatal world, you could have other indications. Like in primary, they could be respiratory, like PPHN is a common one. Meconium aspiration syndrome, but sometimes the RV dysfunction is so significant that they may need VA ECMO. Those are some of the common indications for a VA ECMO. And then, sorry, I forgot one last thing is the congenital heart disease population, uh, uh, where it's a completely different world in the cardiac ICU, where after congenital cardiac surgery, the indications would be like inability to separate from the bypass for whatever reason, or a low cardiac output state after the cardiac surgery. And then sometimes very few and far in between, preoperative stabilization, really recalcitrant arrhythmias, even without a congenital heart disease. In my little career, I have placed two kids on VA ECMO for very recalcitrant arrhythmias with significant poor perfusion, and then pulmonary hypertension. And last but not least, again, eCPR, obviously, always you put them on VA ECMO. Yeah. Is it fair to say that you're generally replacing or assisting cardiac output? in VA ECMO? And then because that's not definitive therapy, how are we using it in the care of this patient? Right. So as you very rightly said, Alice, it is a bridge, right? A VA ECMO is a bridge. Yes, you are supporting primarily the heart in sometimes a circulatory system, so to speak, right? You know, in terms of like a circulatory failure in sepsis for sometimes, yes, there is sepsis-related myocardial dysfunction, but sometimes it's more like the vasoplegia. But primarily, yes, you are supporting the heart. For example, even in, our, in the case scenario you just used, myocarditis, it is a viral inflammation of the myocardium, right? So this comes as a bridge while you rest the heart so that the heart can recover, right? That's very simplistically said, but that is the primary goal. Sometimes the recovery doesn't happen and then you are able to transition them to a transplant, right? So it's always a bridge to organ recovery or transplant. Excellent. Priya, I'd like to ask this next question. It's, it's almost impossible to answer definitively, but more than the, the motivation of the question is to get into your mind how you think about clinical situations. So say I'm in the cardiac ICU, we have this patient with myocarditis, I'm worried about him, I'm worried about him worsening, I'm worried about the need for ECMO. How do you decide when it's time to cannulate? Like, where do you draw the line between a really sick kid with a, a lactate and hypotension and we need to put big old cannulas in their neck or their groin? Where do you draw the line? Wow, it is such a big question, but there is an art and then there is a science to practice medicine. And I feel like this is a perfect combination of that pattern recognition, that like, you know, spidey sense of, okay, this kid is not really doing well. But more I look at, for example, even in your same uh, scenario, right, myocarditis, then the example you gave was he had 
recalcitrant hypotension, right? Like it was just that the heart was not able to produce enough stroke volume. I always think of when we explain, it's like that oxygen delivery and oxygen consumption, right? Your DO2, VO2 curve, when then where the demand is more than the supply, the DO2, VO2 ratio is altered. Then you get into the point of making a lactate and then it becomes very clear. Once you make lactate, sometimes it's like very clear. But most of the time we are fooled, right? There may be a lag in production of lactate and then you can see the hemodynamic decompensation happening. So for me, if you're on like significant inotropes, there are only so many ways of actives or inotropes we can use, especially in the neonatal population also. So if you're already on like two inotropes and you're escalating drips, even though sometimes the lactate is the last thing to happen and by the time like you've already more into the damage, right? So mm-hmm. so hemodynamic decompensation and another major thing is also in myocarditis, if you have significant arrhythmias, for example, you're having a kid with myocarditis and then they have ventricular arrhythmias, VTAC, or even like high degree heart block is also significant enough to go on ECMO. So that itself is like a good indication, at least in specifically in myocarditis patient. So, but to exactly answer your question, it is a fine skill that you hone over a period of time taking care of these kids for a long time. But I think some of the important things are escalating heart rate, escalating vasoactive and inotropic support. Again, obviously production of lactate. Nears, right? Like as you are escalating, you don't see that response in your nears. Again, nears is a trend. So downtrending nears, decreasing venous saturation, arrhythmias in case of a myocarditis like VTAC or, you know, significant heart block in a myocarditis patient, altered mental status. All of these things make me worry it's always good to have these talks, right? Our surgeon always says like, you know, you never over communicate. So always having that planned discussion with the surgeons too, right? I don't want the phone call to be like, hey, I need ECMO right now. Like having those like anticipated talks with the surgeons and hey, this is going on. I think I'll be okay. But you know, having a timeline too, like, hey, we're going to wait the next two hours and see where this is going. And by two hours, you're not seeing any difference, then probably it's time to go on. So I think Mm -hmm. having those conversations is also very helpful. Being proactive, I think, would be the key. Yeah. Thinking about it early. Early. So everybody yeah. knows to be awake and maybe in the building. Yeah. Uh-huh. Priya, this is a great answer to a really difficult question. When I reflect on what you said, there seems to be themes of pattern recognition where you want to have someone on the medical care team who has experience, who's seen patients like this before and gets a gestalt feeling of which way we're headed. Another theme is frequent communication and looping mm-hmm. in all the key stakeholders as soon as we've identified right. a patient who's worsening. Exactly. And yeah. I think the model that you serve as ECMO consultant really does both of these things. You're an extra set of eyes and ears who have experience in these sick patients. You can come to the primary team and say, you know, we had a patient like this six months ago on another team that did really poorly. Maybe we should reach for ECMO a little bit sooner this time. Mm. Exactly. Uh, certainly the art yeah. of medicine. Right. Yes. To emphasize that, right? Picking another brain, asking another colleague, involving the surgeons early, involving the ECMO team early so they are prepared, giving them a heads up, hey, this is the kid I'm worried about, this is his weight, you know, Mm -hmm. so they are ready with what they need to prepare the circuit. All of those things is very helpful. Perfect. And now in Dallas, it does sound Mm -hmm. like you guys have a very well-resourced decision tree because you have an ECMO specialist that you can call. In other hospitals, it might just be the primary intensivist and the surgeon, And so I'm interested in on how you all talk about cannula location. And if it's you, if it's the surgeon, if it's the primary team, really, how do you make that decision and who are the players? Oh, in terms of cannulation strategy? Yeah, Um, yeah. Like in terms of where? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think the decision about cannula size is always depends on the patients, right? Like their Mm -hmm. weight, neonate, infant, you know, bigger size kids, and the nearly adult size teenagers, 
in the cardiac icu for us it's a post cardiotomy right after a cardiac mm-hmm. surgery it's always very easy it's going to be a central cannulation as opposed to kids who have not recently undergone a surgery usually it's going to be a kid that come to the picu right it's going to be a peripheral cannulation your cannula size depends on the baby's weight and then in a neonate or a small infant you go for the big veins right so you're almost always you're reaching for the ij and the carotid cannulation through the neck if it's a bigger kid like teenage size kids you could reach to a femoral cannulation so you could do a femoral vein femoral artery cannulation or femoral ij and femoral artery cannulation that could also be done that's how we think about it and always your venous cannula is going to be bigger because your flow is limited or dependent on your venous drainage obviously the veins are distensible so they would take a bigger cannula and then your arterial is going to be somewhat smaller for a neonate it's going to be like 10 french and an 8 french 10 french for a venous and an 8 french for a arterial cannula central you're not at all limited in the central you're going to be a right atrium and aortic arch cannulation right so then you're not very limited by that again if it's a small baby it depends on the patient in a certain way but you're not so much worried about the flow or what you can support in a central cannulation but in a peripheral the weight of the patient matters the size of the patient matters yeah it makes a lot of sense if you have that fresh sternotomy you're going to go right back there for your ectopic right. cannulation right uh-huh. right and in front of you surgeons you know there. like they know their landmarks and then it is easy it also makes sense that in the youngest the babies really their cerebral vessels are the ones that they're actually large enough to take these catheters so an ij and carotid approach is going to be the most common approach for peripheral cannulation and then the bigger kids the adolescents the femoral vessels become an option Priya, one clarifying question. It makes sense, you know, the neonate's going to get the neck cannulation, the adult-sized kid is going to get a groin cannulation more likely. You know, where do you draw the line? A 4-year-old or an 8-year-old comes in like, what should our mental model be? Where should it shift from neck to groin cannulation? I would really say about like after 12 or 13 you look at the patient size and nearly closely to like 50 kilos sometimes, just an yeah. arbitrary number. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I've seen 30 so, kilos in literature before. Yeah. I don't think I've done that specific search in terms of after certain size but for sure yeah 30 kilos seems right so 30 kilos and then you know teenager definitely above like 12 or 13 I would still consider a femoral cannulation if possible certainly it's just another example of how a lot of this is art of medicine there's a continuum there and we're of course asking you to to put a finer point on it is harder to do it's more your eyes on the patient in front of you and what options you have there may be a blood clot in a certain vein that's going to take that one out all entirely Exactly. Yeah, cardiac population where you know they've had previous surgeries or previous cardiac catheterizations and some of these little bit older kids are like a post transplant kid, you know, who's probably in a rejection where we see like decreased function then in anticipation we do vessel mapping and look in their major veins like femoral artery, femoral vein, IJ or subclavian just to make sure there are not any clots and then have access points readily available in the event that they need ECMO. Yes. Oh, nice. Is vessel mapping basically a just very broad ultrasound of the vasculature in the yeah. and do you do it as the intensivist or do you have the ultrasound people come and do it and document it with rads? Usually we have used ultrasound people like a proper venous ultrasound and an arterial ultrasound. Yeah. Very infrequently we have used MRI. Nice. I have a follow-up question. Why not use IJ carotid approach in an older kid? So that also brings up a question of vessel repair. Most of the places and again I have not done a full literature search on this but even our practice within our two different ICUs is somewhat different. So in the PICU all the cannulations are done by our general surgeons and our general surgeons typically do not repair the vessels. 
they are tied off. And then given with risk of stroke, the vessels are not repaired. Whereas in a cardiac ICU, the vessels are repaired. And I truly don't know what is the evidence supporting the either. But, mm-hmm. you know, cardiothoracic surgeons, they recannulate because cardiac population is somewhat different, right? Like there's always this question that they need for the surgeries and always like to keep all the vessels open. So they do reconstruct. So that's why I think in older kids, if we can avoid the neck cannulation, which is, you know, essential part of your circle of villus, I think that's why every effort is made to preserve the cerebral blood vessels. Right. For that risk of stroke, which is the most important thing we're Mm -hmm. trying to do is preserve that brain. Exactly. Yes. So we've got our 15-year-old with myocarditis cannulated via IJFEM. What flows are we looking for? How do we ensure adequate oxygen delivery here? The answer is there in your question. So the crux of everything what we do in the ICU is oxygen delivery, right? So we pick, we think is appropriate cannula size for the patient's weight and body habitus. And really for a VA ECMO, and especially in a myocarditis, you want to support their cardiac index, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So you have an assumption of their cardiac index based on, you know, either the traditional calculation or per meter squared, and then we have centrifugal pumps. So RPMs is directly proportional to your flows. So you are increasing your RPMs. Once your flows are established, you slowly increase your RPMs. You get to maximum flow and make sure that everything flows intact. And then what we do typically is once the flow is established, we make sure that what the patient's nears are. And obviously, we have a console attached. The pump we use is CardioHelp. And you see a console and you have a direct live transmission of your venous saturation there. So mainly you look at your venous saturation and then estimated what the cardiac index they are supported at the time, what cardiac index is needed, and then essentially get some lab data after that, right? Make sure the CDI venous saturation matches your SVO2 and lactate. Obviously, the index lactate is going to be high. And then slowly, that's why you get serial lab numbers and to see whether you're able to clear the lactate. But it's mostly oxygen delivery, right? Whatever flows is enough to clear the lactate and establish adequate oxygen delivery so that organ perfusion can be restored. Everything you're saying makes perfect sense. When you cannulate for VA ECMO, you're essentially taking over cardiac output for that patient. So you want to make sure the lactate is going down, the nears are going up, kidney function, liver function, everything is improving. One clarifying question for maybe for me and other people who aren't as experienced When that ECMO specialist is asking you, you know, Priya, where do you want me to start out with flows? So what's a good rule of thumb for maybe an adolescent patient, whether it's a cardiac index or MLs per kilo? What do you usually say? For the flow, I would target 100, 110, 120. Typically, we get more than 150, 160 in the single ventricle BDD population. But that's, you know, again, in a different talk. That's like to support for that extra flow that happens through the BDD But typically, without any congenital cardiac disease, so to speak, or in any single ventricle physiology, we typically aim for about 100 to 120 ml of flow to begin with, right? That may be too much. That may be too little. We don't know. But that's where I would start with and then get some initial lab values and see where we are in terms of our lactate and venous saturation perspective. And then I think that initial eight hours after going on ECMO is very crucial to fine-tune your flows, see where there is any restriction, and then make sure the kidneys are recovering or, you know, the patient starts to make urine and the lactate, the nears, all of that help. To me, like going on is part of it. And then the next, I'm saying eight hours, but I think a lot of things can happen in that eight hours. And I think that is sort of like a little bit of a crucial period. Sure. Yeah. It's a big moment for the patient and the team. Uh-huh. I think having that data point of around 100 to 110 mLs per kilo for your patients with two ventricles, maybe a little bit more for patients with one ventricle, is a helpful charting point for our learners and trainees. 
Priya, I want us to just envision our patient that we're talking about. The patient with myocarditis has an IJ drainage and a femoral arterial return. Let's say the function is very poor. And as you look at the arterial line tracing, you're barely seeing any systolic upstroke. Let's talk about the effects of ECMO on the left side of the heart and potential things that we might need to do over there. Yeah. I think what you're alluding to is how VA ECMO can actually increase your afterload, right? This leads to a sequence of events, which all can culminate in flooded pulmonary edema. That's when the question comes, if this patient needs a decompression, whether your LA needs to be decompressed or not. I think that's what you're alluding to, right, Jaya? So I think in a VA ECMO, I would say like the sequence of events that can happen is the VA ECMO actually increases your afterload and your aortic root pressure, right? So this in turn if it's combined with some degree of aortic valve incompetency, right? That's why I think the important question we ask is like, what is your pulse pressure? And then the echo, we serially look at whether your aortic valve opens or not. Some degree of aortic valve incompetence in combination with increased LV afterload since you go on ECMO actually leads to some degree of LV distension. In addition, even though your flows are fully captured, there is still like blood that returns back into the left atrium. You have blood from the Thebesian veins, the bronchial veins, all of those also come back. And there is also some residual pulmonary blood flow. And all of this can start seeping into the lungs and then give you pulmonary venous hypertension and then significant pulmonary edema. This in turn can also increase your CVP, increases your RV afterload also. So in general, this can all culminate. As you would see, clinically, the patient can have frothy bloody secretions that you can see through the endotracheal tube. You can see evidence of this in your chest X-ray. The other one thing I did not mention is this slow LV distension can also increase your LV and diastolic volume and your pressure. And this can also lead to myocardial wall stress and sometimes even some ischemia. Again, there is stasis and there is not a lot of ejection. This is a prime nidus for an LV thrombus formation and then can have embolic event too. So that's why I think the crucial eight hours, these are some of the things also that you keep on closely watch to assess what the LV is doing, pay close attention to your arterial line tracing, what the patient is doing, you know, are you getting frothy pulmonary secretions? All of those things are important. And then chest X-ray, these are the things you pay attention to and sort of make a decision about, do we need to decompress this left atrium? Some of the kids don't need a decompression, but there are some people who believe that every VA ECMO needs to be, they need to have an LA decompression. So interestingly, there is not a consensus in the ECMO world, like, Do every kid need a decompression? What are the diagnostic criteria for this? Whether you diagnose it clinically, whether you diagnose it based on chest X-ray, whether you diagnose it based on a cat or an echocardiogram, there is not a great consensus. A review by Z, Ashley Z, I think is the first name and colleagues. This came out in 2019 in Annals of Cardiothoracic Surgery. It's a really good review. Although a lot of things pertain to adult world, it's also a good representation of what are the things to look for in the pediatric population also. It's a really good review in terms of like where there is not a great consensus in how we diagnose, is there an adequate timing for the decompression? So you can see how there is not a very unified or a great consensus regarding this. I would say though in our central cannulation patients, post-cardiac surgery population, because it's an open sternum and it's a central cannulation, all of them get a LA vent, which is like a decompression strategy. There is an additional cannula that sits in the LA appendage or left atrium. There are multiple ways to do that, but most of them do get it, at least in our practice has been that way. But rest of the kids who get peripherally cannulated, 
we do look for all of these things. And if there is clinical evidence and there is evidence with the echo, they do get LAD compression. Because there is not a unified consensus, I think it's based on every kid, how they present after the cannulation would be a fair statement. So this seems so important. Let me try to read back what I understand. You let me know if I have it right. So we have this patient who has an arterial cannula going to the femoral vessels. It's pumping in oxygenated blood on a high pressure. That's going to increase afterload to the left ventricle. If you have a really weak ventricle, it's not going to be able to eject blood across the aortic valve. So you're going to have progressive distension of the LV. You're going to have distension in left atrial hypertension. And that's going to lead to backflow of blood into the pulmonary veins, causing congestion there that may cause frothy secretions the same way they might see pulmonary edema clinically. Those patients, you want to monitor them closely with an echo and just clinically. And if there is evidence of left atrial hypertension, that would be when a LA vent or some other method would be indicated. Right. And I said LA vent. Are there any other procedures that are available for our patients who are peripherally VA cannulated to decompress their left side? Sure. An LA vent typically is placed in a central cannulation. But in a peripheral cannulation, typically we ask the help from our interventional cardiology colleagues, and then they go to the cath lab and they get a balloon atrial septostomy. Or if they do have a PFO that had not closed, then they do get that enlarged. So mm-hmm. mostly it's through our interventional cardiologist who they do that. That's one way to do it. Balloon atrial septostomy is the most common way we do it. We could also do it surgically. But we tend to think of less, <laughs> it is all invasive, but you know, sort of like less invasive. Yeah. Minimally invasive, invasive ECMO, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I understand what you're saying. The catheter-based mm-hmm. technique certainly is less invasive than a, perhaps a procedure percutaneous. Yes. Alice, you want to give us the next question? When we think about the vent settings that we're changing our patient to in VV ECMO, you've got the debate between the open lung and lung rest strategy. What are the differences about the vent settings that you use in VA ECMO, especially with regards to like coronary perfusion, things like that? So... We all hope that post-cardiotomy patients, the function recovers fast, right? Typically, those kids, it takes about like 72 hours for the function to come back. Empirically, you use that 72 hours. So I don't typically like completely rest the lungs, so to speak. We do give them in a good degree of PEEP, and I try to ventilate them normally as possible. That way that if the kid is ready, then the lungs, you don't let them collapse, and lungs not the one that delay their progress, so to speak. Even in a myocarditis patient, that's what I would tend to do. If it's a pure cardiac reason, the hope is that the function is going to come back and we don't want the lungs to sort of delay the patient's progress. Mm -hmm. Treat them normally. Treat them normally. Yeah. Priya, a follow-up question that kind of goes into all of this. I had a patient early in my training who was VA cannulated for peripherally in lower extremity, and they actually had desaturation in the upper extremities, but they were fully saturated in lower extremities and told me it was called Harlequin syndrome. I'd just like to know more about what's going on there and how can we possibly prevent that? Yes, if your arterial oxygenated blood is returning back to the femoral artery, whereas your cardiac function has recovered, but the lungs have not recovered, so you still have blood going through the native lungs and the native heart, but then because the lungs are sort of lagging behind, you are not fully oxygenated from that aspect, so you have deoxygenated blood that is actually coming from the native heart. What is described as, one is the Harlequin syndrome, it is also described as a mixing cloud, where there is like there is a mm. point where the oxygenated blood and the deoxygenated blood meets. And then depending on where that mixing cloud is, you have varying degrees of differential saturation, um, you would describe. So you have like lower saturation in the upper extremities in a way that, you know, your brain is seeing this deoxygenated blood, whereas like oxygenated blood is in the lower extremities. So you have a differential saturation. So that is what the reason for the Harlequin syndrome. 
So the treaters can do other things. One is work on the lungs, right? Aggressive pulmonary toilet, doing a bronchoscopy, clearing the lungs up. And then other things are additional inflow cannula to the jugular vein. If the cardiac function is not adequate, then it would be like a VAV ECMO, something, you know, different cannulation strategies in that way. Sometimes if the cardiac function is required adequately, then you could convert them into a VV ECMO. In that way, you're just working on the lungs now and getting them recruited back or converting them to a central cannulation are some of the strategies to overcome that. I think it's a lot more seen in the adult world. You know, in our little babies, I have not seen a Harlequin syndrome. And I've been doing this for seven years now, so I have not seen a significant Harlequin syndrome to like relate my own clinical experience. But um, mm-hmm. this is what you know I've, I've seen in literature. Interesting. So you could add an inflow cannula to the IJ so that you're at least getting some oxygenated blood through and out that part of the aorta. If a patient has significant lung disease and their inflow is the FEM, that does sound very possible, right? right? Yeah. And then that's their brain. So Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So our mitocarditis patient is through the woods. We're starting to see some cardiac recovery. What does that look like? And how do we start to think about the next steps for them? Sure. So you can see that by looking at other rest of the organ function also, right? So the kidneys have improved. Typically, at least in significant cardiogenic shock, we also see elevation of LFTs. So your LFTs are going in the good direction. And then you start seeing, you know, a good pulse pressure variation based on your arterial line. Obviously, if you think clinically he has made some improvement, we obviously get an echo to see where the function is. And NIRS, lactate, all of your laboratory data. So it's a combination of lab values, recovery of organ function, improvement in the pulse pressure, echocardiographic evidence. All of this helps us think that the heart is coming back. Tell us about your general strategy you take when you are deciding to wean ECMO flows and what does it look like practically at the bedside? Yeah. So what traditionally we always done is a clamping trial, so to speak, right? So we think that, okay, this patient is ready to be trialed off. So what we do is we tell the specialist to walk down the flows. For example, if they are initially they were supported 100 to 120, we walk down the flows 80, 70, 60, and then prepare them. 30 cc's per kilo is like you're not providing a lot of support through the ECMO at all. So get them to like, you know, that level. And then in anticipation, we have like inotropes ready. For example, if you think they'll need some meldenone or like um, epi, some degree of support as you're like walking them through this trial, make sure that the lungs are open that day, right? Have on good ventilator settings to support the clamp trial. So Give them like a good amount of what they need. If it's like PRVC, like give them the adequate tidal volume rate, everything that is supposed to be if they were not on ECMO. And then sometimes we anticipately start the inotropic support, like, you know, epi and something like 20, 30 minutes before the trial. And then literally what you do is you clamp them. So when you say clamp, it's like basically placing clamps on both the cannula. And then, um, so you have this shunt or you have a bridge that that is left open so that there is still like some flow going through the circuit. One thing that is frequently forgotten is like, you know, remove all the drips that is actually going through the ECMO cannula to like, you know, a different (laughs) side. Because like if (laughs) you're going to clamp, like they're not going to see the Mm -hmm. drug. For example, if it's a sedation or something that is going through. So these are little things that, you know, we sometimes forget. Or you're Um, happy. And then, right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) so that's like preparing the patient and then optimizing your hemoglobin if that's what needed all of those things and then essentially you clamp and then you test the patient so then once you place the clamp we built this clamp trial report on epic in the cardiac icu so where you actually can clip the t3 data there's a column where you have like heart rate 
NIRS, CVP. So usually you clamp and then you wait for 10 minutes and then you get a gas and lactate. And then what you call is essentially flashing the circuit, right? You actually remove the clamp, let the blood flow go through, and then you clamp again. So typically we do it about 40 to 60 minutes, like an hour. And I think that's Mm -hmm. a good evidence to give you an idea whether this patient is ready for decannulation. Most often than not, we do get an echocardiogram to make sure that the function is indeed good. As your clinical data suggests, you also have data from echocardiogram. And once we are ready, then we let our surgeons know that, you know, the patient can be ready to be decannulated. Oh, nice. So all this makes sense. Just to read this back, you're going to methodically lower their flows to something that's subphysiologic, maybe 30 mLs per kilo. It's a, it's a rule of thumb. You're going to actually take clamps and clamp the ECMO circuit where it goes to the patient. Then you're going to serially check labs and do your clinical exam to see how well they're tolerating that. And maybe every 10 minutes or so, you have to flush out the ECMO circuit with fresh blood so nothing clots. And then make a clinical assessment after about an hour or so. That sound fair enough? Yeah. We also pay attention to what happens, right? Like, okay, if you clamp and then patient becomes hypotensive, you escalate the drips, like treat the patient as they need. And then if they are awake, give them some sedation and, you know, make sure that they tolerate all of this. Based on your blood gas, adjust the ventilator if there is a ventilatory problem. So concurrently also treat the patient, pay attention to their heart rate, CVP, all of those things. There are different ways to do this and each patient is different, but If you're needing two inotropes, right, to maintain your blood pressure, if you make a lactate or if you're needing a lot of support, right, for example, you start out on 0.03 of epi and then you're escalating to 0.05, then by end of like 20 minutes, you're on like 0.1, then you're not ready. That good 40 to 60 minutes, sometimes it's not adequate, but I feel like it's a good rule of thumb to like at least let them through 40 minutes and see what happens. Or if they're extremely tachycardic, their nears drop, CVP goes up, then they're not ready. You just have to make a decision combining all the factors. It seems like a theme from today's meeting is that there's not RCTs to guide every decision along the way, right? (laughs) So your clinical gestalt, what experience you have and the trajectory you anticipate for your patient is going to make a lot of these decisions and having a team around you certainly helps that. Right. Nice. Okay. So this is the best case scenario is that you've done a clamping trial. Mm -hmm. The data is beautifully presented to you from T3. You decide to move forward. If a patient isn't showing cardiac recovery, but they've got adequate other organ function, like adequate lung function, when do you start to think about transitioning them to a VAD? How do you make that decision? Great question. And we, at least our surgeons and, you know, our, uh, there is always early preposition of VADs because nothing is free what we do in the ICU. So ECMO has its own morbidities and, you know, side effects. And we consider VADs very early on. So by, I would say, seven days. Again, seven is arbitrary number, right? Typically, we expect myocarditis to come back in like seven days, at least enough to decannulate, right? So by seven days, seven to 10 days, the rest of the organ function is all restored, but the cardiac function is not recovered, then we go for VAD. We are very pro-VAD, early VAD Mm. uh, program. So seven days, if you're not seeing recovery, we already start talking about VAD. Nice. And tell us, what is the main advantage of VAD over ECMO for these patients? The important morbidity that you acquire, right? One is bleeding, bleeding, bleeding from ECMO, but the other one is also the risk of stroke. And oxygenator is the main culprit, usually, by the nature of it. And that's where you trap the clots. And, you know, oxygenator is considered as one of the main source of clots that can propagate, that can give you risk for stroke or in a high risk for stroke. So in a VAD, you don't have an oxygenator in VAD, right? Eliminating the oxygenator, which is an important risk factor for stroke, is one of the other advantage. And then once your VAD is placed, then mobilizing the patient becomes 
I wouldn't say extremely easy, but then it makes it definitely more easier. Then, you know, you can move ahead with extubating the patient and then give them all the adequate rehab that they need. That way they are ready for the next phase in their life. Either it is a VAD as a destination, whereas a VAD is a bridge to a cardiac transplant. Nice. Yeah. Well, I appreciate all your hard work, gosh, Priya. You've done such a great job walking us through this topic that is core to what we do each day at the bedside, but there's no great literature that supports every single decision we make. And we rely on our local experts to walk us through these very high stakes scenarios. Before we wrap things up, I want to give you one more open-ended question. Really, it's an opportunity to mention or plug anything you like. It can be a resource, a conference to attend, or maybe just some highlights of today's conversation. Yeah, I think ELSO website, right, is a great resource. ELSO has put out guidelines. It's also a live registry, right? So it has this ongoing database about all the ECMO runs on all the ELSO centers. So if you just go to the ELSO website, there is a guidelines tab and then click on it. And then there is like a initial document that comes up as general guidelines. It's a great resource for a first year fellow. They walk through everything, like every part of the circuit including like, you know, cannula, like the oxygenator, the pump and description of that, weaning and how do you clamp, like all of those things. It's a 25-page PDF document, at least for the general guidelines. That would be a great resource for the first-year fellows, at least. And then more if you're into research, ELSO registry, a huge database. You could do tons of clinical research using that database. It is very meticulously maintained. They also have their own publications using the ELSO registry. So you can also get inspired by what people have done using the ELSO mm-hmm. registry, what questions they have answered. ELSO also puts out a red book. I know I don't think anybody reads a traditional book anymore, but in that book, the chapter for hypoxic respiratory failure is fantastic. How do you do a VV ECMO and how do you support lungs is really good. I think I learned a ton from that during my fellowship. So that is a great resource. And also, if you have heard about Congenital Heart Academy, There is a YouTube channel through them. They did a really good review on ECMO. I think there are two parts to it. It's basically like different aspects of ECMO explained by different experts. That is also a great resource. So those are the things that immediately come to my mind. It does sound great. Well, Priya, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. Really, thank you very much for this opportunity. And thank you for listening to this episode of Pete's Crit. Please remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as replacement for medical advice. The views expressed during this episode by hosts and our guests are their own and do not reflect the official position of their institutions. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at pedscritpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at critpeds and at pedscrit on Instagram for real-time show updates. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review in your favorite podcasting application and share with your colleagues. Also, if you'd like to support the making of the podcast, please see the description for Venmo information and how to become a Patreon. Any donation will be appreciated. Thank you again for listening and goodbye. <laughs>